This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages. I'm your host, Jonathan, and this is episode 29, in which Harold learns. Today we pick up our story of Harold Sigurdsson as he enters into a self-imposed exile from his home in Norway, a place far too hostile for him to remain. However, we spend the first part of the episode discussing the major player in Harold's new home, a man who is still revered today. The second part is focused on Harold's transformation based on fact as well as inferences informed by the few reports we have. This is the life and times of Harold Sigurdsson, better known to history as the incomparable Harold Hardrada. I hope you enjoy the show. Sigurdsson arrived, still healing from a wound suffered at the hands of his fellow Norsemen just months earlier. During the same battle, his half-brother, Olaf II Haraldsson, fell while trying to wrest the crown back from, from some filthy Danish Anglophile king. There was no doubt that he was instantly struck by familiarity and alienation wherever he looked. These same people, a people he knew to be the Rus, from stories Olaf probably told him months earlier, were quite familiar. But still, they had strange and peculiar customs he, he wasn't quite familiar with all the same. This place referred to by many names, Gartariki, Austerveger, Novgorod, Kivenrus territory, just to name a few, was a place unto itself on the far eastern edges of the map, or the far reaches of the Arabian map, depending on who was doing the writing. Harold saw Slavs and Swedes and others who had joined in the commerce of the place and day, and he no doubt heard a handful of different languages too. Walking through the markets, Harold and his friend, and only company from Stickelstad, Rognvalder Brusassen, no doubt tasted local foods, as well as possibly a meal with ingredients brand new to his tongue. He heard place names that were alien to him, but he also realized something that seemed to drive him throughout his life. This world, it was far larger than he could have possibly imagined growing up in Ringerik. After hearing stories about a great and wise ruler in the East, Harold knew he would be welcomed there, as were so many other Scandinavians throughout the Viking Age. Don't forget that presumably in the 980s, one Olaf Tryggvason also sought refuge among the Rus, then led by Vladimir the Great. It most likely wasn't long before he requested an audience with the Grand Prince of this growing collection of cities and towns between the great Eurasian rivers of the Volga and the Dnieper. 
It had been roughly a decade or more since Yaroslav had moved his capital to Kiev. It wasn't easy either. I mean, overthrowing one's own brother. A brother, mind you, who had already established himself, firmly, I might add, as a warlord and slayer of their other brothers, is no task to be taken lightly. Now, Yaroslav was not innocent in this violence, as he was known to stand against his father previously as well. See, in 1013 or 1014, Vladimir named his youngest son, Boris, formally as heir to the title of Grand Prince of the Kievan Rus, thus frog-jumping Yaroslav and the others. Yaroslav obviously didn't take kindly to this move, and he refused to pay tribute to his father for a time. A big no-no in those days, as not only was this money out of the pocket of the top ruler in the land, but also it was an affront to the power structure, thus diminishing Vladimir's overall esteem. There's no question that Vladimir would move on Yaroslav's Novgorod. So Yaroslav began preparations to meet force with force, if it came to blows. Which, let's be honest, it probably would have. Well, it probably would have had... Vladimir, not died in 1015. This would kick off an incredibly volatile and violent succession crisis that wouldn't be settled until 1019. Young Boris in 1015 was occupying Yaroslav's old post as Prince of Rostov, but upon the death of his father he was immediately catapulted to Grand Prince. But it was ultimately not to be. Though the history is a little fuzzy, the Russian Primary Chronicle, again, the founding document of the Russian and Ukrainian peoples, depending on who you ask, of course, blames the death of Boris on another of Vladimir's sons, Sviatopolk I of Kiev, who usurped Boris's claim and crowned himself Grand Prince instead. Now, Sviatopolk's role is an interesting one in my estimation, and it centers on a people whom we haven't had the privilege or opportunity to focus on yet. The Polish. Poland had recently become, not officially, but it had become a kingdom to be, so to speak, in its own right, led by the influential duke at the time, Duke Boleslav I. Now, what's this about kingdom and now duke? Well, I say duke because it's not a new idea to the podcast, but one that we will come to in on its own on the next season of the podcast. So let's take a moment to introduce it here. This idea of vassalage, firmly planted within the unnamed at the time economic and politically convenient system we call today feudalism. We've spoken about feudalism in the past, but not quite in this way. Dependency is the name of the game in feudalism, it seems. In the case of Poland, not only was Poland's legitimately dependent on foreign recognition and support, you know, much like it is today, just see not only the controversy of the establishment of the Israeli state in the 1950s, but also the controversies surrounding the establishment of a Palestinian state today. But the far larger and far more influential Holy Roman Empire was dependent on support from others to bolster their political and economic reach throughout, the medie throughout medieval Europe. Without this extension of vassalage, thus a buffer against the growing Rus, Pechenegs, and Khazars in the east, the Holy Roman Empire would remain susceptible on their right flank, so to speak. 
In walks a local leader named Miezhko, who way back in the mid-960s entered into the sphere of Latin Rite Christianity and was looking to coalesce the myriad Polish and Slavic groups of modern-day Poland into a cohesive polity. He had made small inroads to the European elite already through marriage and other agreements, but he was looking for something, well, bigger. He was intelligent, to say the least, and an effective leader inside and outside of the military arena. He soon allied himself with the kingdoms of Bohemia and of Sweden. But the big grab was with the Holy Roman Empire. It was during this time when the Baltic port of Gdansk and the river town of Krakow to its south were firmly established as commercial, military, and political centers of Poland. Mieszko would assume the role as both leader of the Polish as well as duke to the Holy Roman Empire, thus supporting the emperor's legitimacy further and bolstering the empire's lines when military force was ensued, while also keeping, well, a, a territory, a political region to himself. By 1015, Mieszko was long dead, but his vassal state of Poland was still growing and organizing and Christian Christianizing, thus boosting their legitimacy in the West. It was currently being led by Mieszko's son, Boleslav I. Now here's a side note. I'd like to offer yet another piece of evidence as to how interconnected our shared history is. It was Mieszko's daughter, or Boleslav's sister, according to many accounts, who first married King Eric of Sweden and giving birth to Sweden's king, Olaf Skotkunung, whom we briefly mentioned during our Danish Conquest of England episodes. I should add that Olaf's birth is also attributed to Sigrid the Haughty too, for what it's worth. Second, though, she married none other than Swain Forkbeard of Denmark, and from this marriage came two names we might recognize here. Harold II Swainson, King of Denmark, and... Canute the Great. Yes, within one generation, the thrones of Denmark, England, Norway, and likely Sweden were directly connected by the courts of Poland and Bohemia. Don't forget that Mieszko married Dobrava of Bohemia as well. So back to 1015 and, and Poland's leader, Boleslav I, who was by title Duke Boleslav I at that point though not for long because Boleslav I would, by 1025, become Poland's first recognized actual king. Sviatopolk I was again struggling to quell his Kievan Rus territory and appealed to his father-in-law, you guessed it, Duke Boleslav I of Poland and vassal of the Holy Roman Empire. You're starting to see the threads forming here. The German monk Thietmar records later that Boleslav sent up to 5,000 Polish soldiers, as well as a number of mercenaries and German knights offered by the empire, and more than a 1,000 Pechenegs who were looking for a quick buck. At this point, Yaroslav had overtaken Kiev and kicked out Sviatopolk, thus Sviatopolk's appeal to his Polish father-in-law. Poland was most definitely acting in its own best interests here, and it was regardless of whether Boleslav saw Sviatopolk as an effective ruler, a rightful heir to the throne, or even the fact that he was his son-in-law, didn't matter. Corrupt ascensions to the thrones of Europe were the name of the game, 
not some strange sense of fairness not yet fully developed and embraced by the West. The Battle of Bug River seemed to be the deciding victory that Sviatoslav, excuse me, Sviatopolk, Sviatoslav was a, an ancestor of Sviatopolk, if that's not confusing enough. Uh, let me try that again. The Battle of Bug River seemed to be the deciding victory that Sviatopolk needed, because after that engagement, Sviatopolk was able to march on Kiev because Yaroslav had withdrawn north to his home in Novgorod. In addition to reaffirming their eastern borders with a trusted excuse me, ally in Sviatopolk, Poland had also taken the opportunity to use its large force to recapture some of the lost land decades earlier, thus proving once again that, well, nothing, and I mean nothing, is free, then or now. But this, relatively st uh, this relative stability wouldn't last. Between 1015 and 1019, Yaroslav would see three of his brothers fall to Sviatopolk, Gleb, Sviatoslav, and the aforementioned Boris. We mentioned Bug River, but it's not as if that was the only engagement between Yaroslav and Sviatopolk here. Hardly. And though fairly even, Yaroslav seemed to be coming out ahead uh, by Bug River. After a number of months, Boleslav recalled his contingent, and during this withdrawal, Yaroslav attacked, driving Sviatopolk southeast toward the Pechenegs lands. Who would think, or excuse me, you would think, given the history between the Slavs, the Rus, and the Pechenegs, that that would be the last of Sviatopolk. But, like a last-second gasp of the defeated antagonist in a horror flick, Sviatopolk reappears in 1019 at the head of a Pecheneg army. And Yaroslav responded in kind, meeting him at Alta River, which not only would host a battle here, but would also be a would also host a battle that we will most likely talk about in future episodes. It's worth noting also before continuing that along the Alta River in modern-day Ukraine, possibly even at the site of this Battle of Alta River in 1019, Sviatopolk, some records state. Actually, this is the place that he assassinated his brothers and future saints, Boris and Gleb, four years earlier. Regardless, in 1019, Alta River would spell the end of Sviatopolk's claim over Yaroslav and the Kievan Rus territory. A decisive victory for Yaroslav sealed the deal, sending Pechenegs running back home and Sviatopolk sneaking west toward his father's court once again. Some say foul play, while most claim just illness, but either way, on his way to Poland, Sviatopolk died, which really was the ultimately decisive moment in Yaroslav's hold on Kiev. Throughout the 1020s, much like Knut did in England during this time, Yaroslav would rewrite the direction of his Rus people. I don't want to spend you know, the time on his reforms now, and they were big, as our current narrative is following another at the moment, but we will take a look at them in the future in a future episode when they become more relevant to the story. Suffice it to say that when Harold Sigurdsson and his friend Rogdvalder Brusasen were able to meet with Grand Prince Yaroslav in 1030, they were not met by an inexperienced leader. It was known far and wide Yaroslav's struggle for Kiev. His political acumen was second to none in the region, 
His military prowess had only improved in the intervening years, and his judgment and yearning for fair and educated systems became a hallmark of Eastern European conversation. In short, Yaroslav was marveled at by Christian and Muslim chroniclers alike. It was no small wonder why he was labeled the wise. And it was no small wonder why he is referred to in Norse sagas as Yaroslav the Lame either, because one of the first things Harold would have observed was the noticeable limp he had, no doubt from a war wound in the past, but there's really no telling when he developed it, and I find it very interesting that there were recent discoveries having um, looked at his skeletons that have proven the, the injury did occur in his leg. Word of Stickelstad was no secret at that point, especially noting how quickly word traveled along the commercial routes of the Viking Age. Yaroslav may have offered con condolences for the loss of Harold's half-brother, if anything less of a, a personal sadness, and more so the idea that, given Olaf II's warm welcome while in exile over the previous two years, had Olaf risen to the throne of Norway, that is, one Stickelstad and one more after that, risen to the throne of Norway again, and managed to stay there, well, that most likely would have rewarded alliances through marriage or trade or even military support between Norway and Kiev. Again, nothing is free then as it is today. But if Harold, who clearly had nothing to go back home to, except certain death, unlike Olaf II, who still held firm claim to the throne of Norway, Harold was going to assume a role in Yaroslav's territory he was about to work for, regardless of how warm the welcome to Kiev was reported as being. And warm it may have been, as Harold was also known to have been a relative of Ingegard, Yaroslav's wife. So that certainly doesn't hurt Harold's case to stay. And it was then that Harold Sigurdsson came to be in the service of Yaroslav the Wise, Grand Prince of the Kievan Rus. As we've made clear, Kievan Rus territory was hardly a solid polity. Much can be gleaned from, from one of the territory's names, Gartariki, as to the state of the Rus people. Remember, though universally referred to as Vikings, Vikings were simply not a homogenous presence. Sure, they, they carried with them practices that they employed around the medieval world, along with a faith generally regarded as the Norse pantheon. However, again, as I've strived to establish on this podcast, something today's world seems to be increasingly casting aside, is nuance. Vikings were similar in, yes, so many ways, but it's just not that simple. For those who toss all Vikings into the basket of history's deplorables hell bent on nothing but death and destruction, I urge a closer look. Now your closer look will reveal what mine too revealed and continues to reveal, which is to say, Vikings certainly inclined toward raids, which brought, it, which brought with it swift and shocking and appalling death and destruction but we can't discount those threads of Viking history that deviated, eventually, from this tendency, even a little. Rollo. 
Rollo was a deviation. Notice I didn't call Rollo an exception, though. Rollo was inclined toward a forceful, heavy-handed approach to procuring what he desired, right? Which is evidenced by his raids on northern Frankish towns and ports, just death and destruction there as well. However, he is a deviation from this assumptive and intellectually dishonest, if I may, narrative, as evidenced by his ability to accept a vassalage to the Frankish king, thus setting his fellow Vikings on a new course that would shape the next millennium of world politics. Or what about Icelanders? Icelanders, though taking the role of a base of operations for many Vikings throughout northern, the northern Atlantic, who focused violence against the people of Ireland, England, Scotland, and Wales, well, they more or less stayed out of it all. Not completely, but more or less. They didn't set off for expansion, for the most part, and chose instead, even up to the present, to remain a relatively peaceful and culturally stable people. An interesting deviation to the Viking narrative, yes? And back to the Rus. Violent, yes. Reprehensible behavior, yes. But independent, industrious, persistent, all yes. This isn't an argument rationalizing their behavior either. Don't misconstrue this. This is simply an acknowledgement of those aspects of Vikings we tend to overlook. The Rus were these things too. They were people who chose to act reprehensibly and violently, but they were also traders, farmers, fiercely independent, innovative, and they would have never got past the North Sea if they weren't incredibly persistent. Harold entered into the service of the Grand Prince in the midst of what can be called a Kievan Rus Golden Age, ushered in by that same Grand Prince and continued for another decade plus. Harold would play an increasingly important role in Yaroslav's burgeoning polity, though unfortunately, to my knowledge, there is little to be known, except that Harold played an increasingly important role in Kiev as Yaroslav not only built wonders around his territory and created a culture of education and learning, but also as Yaroslav fought to maintain and even expand his circle of influence throughout the Eurasian plains and forests. One such instance was Yaroslav's reclamation of the lands Sviatopolk had lost when his father-in-law withdrew his forces 15 years earlier. This region between southwest Kiev, the land, not the city, and southwest Poland was called Chervin Territory, and it centered on the fortified town of Chervin. You'll also read this locale and its cities referred to as Red Forts and Red Cities, but I've yet to find a reason for this. And I'm all, I'm all ears if a listener has this information, by the way. Yaroslav began this campaign essentially against the Polish lands, for he claimed as Kievan Rus already. And Harold and Rogwalder no doubt accompanied the force during 1030 and 1031, leading to not only a win for Yaroslav, but also a wealth of knowledge of foreign war tactics, weapons, and even languages. This further expanded Harold's worldview without question. 
Between 1031 and 1034, Harold and Rogvalder would rise through the ranks of the Rus military. They became leaders in their own rights and brought Yaroslav glory, wealth, and lands with which to expand his influence, embark on more and more infrastructure and building projects, as that's part of what Yaroslav is so well known for, and further solidify his region under his control, as I've said. Harold fought those Slavic and Rus communities who had yet to assimilate under the Kievan banner. Like I said, the independent natures of both Slav and Rus alike were deeply rooted in their cultural DNA and pulled them into the Kievan fold. He raided Pechenegg and Khazar lands, as well as defended Kievan territory from their own raids, learning much about Turkish culture and steppe warfare. And he would lead minor campaigns establishing order on Kievan borders to the south against fringe Bulgar and Slavic uprisings, inching ever closer to his future. Harold Sigurdsson served under Yaroslav the Wise in Kiev for four years. And for four years, he heard stories of Miklagard, the great city. Miklagard, where an emperor employed magicians and held a personal zoo of the most exotic and mythical creatures in existence. They spoke a strange language, apparently spoken by a huge portion of the lands to the south. And we can safely assume that Harold had heard this strange language in markets of Kiev and other Rus towns he had visited, as the connection between Kiev and Miklagard was, by the 1030s, a solid one, since the days when Yaroslav's father, Vladimir the Great, chose Eastern Rite Christianity as his chosen religion, at least publicly, as a way to form an alliance with the great city through faith. Harold must have become enamored with the idea of further exploration of the world through these stories, further opportunities to build his own wealth, and further chances to build a reputation like no other person, except maybe his contemporary, Duke William of Normandy. It's interesting to think about these two towering figures having existed at the same time, but they did, and their narratives will one day collide in arguably the most pivotal moment in the history of Western civilization, until the 20th century, that is, but I get ahead of myself. It's also interesting, almost universal, that the same medium by which Harold made his next move was the exact same medium that would spur the Hauteville's, the Tosnies, the Drangos, to venture out of Normandy while Harold was growing up in Norway, fighting at Stiklestad, and serving the Kievan Rus. That medium, stories. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, not only explaining the first part of Yaroslav Wise's life, but also the second chapter in young Harold Sigurdsson's life. At this point, if you can believe it, only about the age of 19. Please keep sharing this podcast with those you know and on your social media accounts. Don't forget to tag us too if you share us on Twitter, at Wheel Podcast, or drop a quick line about the latest episode on Facebook, Fortune's Wheel Podcast. I'd love to hear from you. Also, you can email the show at fortuneswheelpodcast at gmail.com. And please consider supporting the show on Patreon. In 1034, after helping to secure Yaroslav's territory considerably over the last four years, 
more than repaying the Grand Prince for his generosity, I would say. Harold struck out, seeking adventure, wealth, and the ability to write his own future. He would remain an ally of Yaroslav and even use Yaroslav as a sort of bank, sending his future earnings to Kiev for safekeeping, instilling a sense that the two most likely developed a pretty strong bond for that level of trust. But Harold will also say goodbye to probably his strongest ally, the childhood friend who helped him escape to Sweden and then to Kiev after fighting by his side at Stickelstad four years earlier. Rognvalder Brusasen will choose to stay in Kiev and make his way under Yaroslav, maybe even create a family someday too. On the next episode, we will take a look at Harold striking out for the first time in his life on his own into the most exotic and foreign place he'd ever been. Harold will most likely follow the centuries-old, dangerous path down the mighty Dnieper River, emptying out into the vast Black Sea, then following the coastlines lined with hostile Pecheneg settlements, straight to the Bosporus, the crossroads of the world, the place which housed a city unlike anything the world had yet seen. A city the Rus called Miklagard, the great city, the crooks of the East and the West, the commercial, political, cultural, and religious center point upon which the balance of the medieval world spun. Next week, Harold Sigurdsson arrives in Constantinople. I can't wait to tell you about it.